You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Willamette Christian Church in Westland, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at willamette.cc or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. My name is Grant Hickman. I'm one of the pastors here, and thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. You know, I, I know that on a Sunday morning, people come to church for all sorts of reasons. Maybe for some of you, this is just your thing. Um, it's your tradition of sorts. It's your rhythm of life. You come week in and week out. Some of you attend. Some of you attend one and serve one, and many of you give here on a regular basis because you just believe in your church home, and so, so thanks. Thanks for making this a part of your regular rhythms of life, but I know others of you, you're new to the area. I've been hearing stories at our staff meetings of people that are just moving into the area, checking out churches and going, man, we're finding a home here. And then I know others of you that you're here because a friend invited you. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody you met at the soccer game yesterday. Uh, but, but they said, man, there's just stuff that God is doing in my life and at our church, and they invited you, and you were brave enough to say yes. And so thank you for jumping in and being with us on a Sunday, especially as we're in this series that we've titled Under Pressure. You see, in this series, we are looking at the unavoidable reality of the pressures that we face in life. That especially over the past couple of years, maybe we felt an extra amount of pressure on various things. And and many of us have tried to escape that in in different ways and, and run from it or cope with it or deal with it on our own rather than going, okay, wait a minute. What if, what if God has something for me in this pressure? And so we've been using sort of this tool here called a pressure scale, right? That as you look at it, maybe the tendency would be to go like, man, there's low pressure in life and there's high pressure in life. And and sometimes that's absolutely true. But I think for a lot of us over the past couple of years, it's felt a little bit more like it was high pressure and really high pressure. And that there was no low pressure moments. It's just things kept piling up one after another after another. And some of it we could sense and see and others was invisible to us and we could just feel it and we knew that it was there. But every single one of us is under pressure of some kind. And for many of us, it's wearing us down. And in some instances, it's almost even killing us because we feel like we can't survive. In fact, if you were to just today to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to make a list of my week. I'm going to write down everything that I want to do. I'm going to write down everything that I ought to do. And I'm going to write down everything that I have to do. If you were to just go ought, want, and have and write it down and then go, how much time do I have to do it this week? You would all of a sudden be overwhelmed because you're like, ain't enough time. There's just, I just can't get it all done. Or even look at your work, right? If you were to just look at your work environment, you go, gosh, if I was just to think about work this week, I know that I'm under pressure because another deadline is coming. I have another action plan to complete. I'm getting pressure to go back to the office and I'm trying to stay out of going back to the office because I've kind of enjoyed that lifestyle, right? And so you feel the pressure that is coming and is there. And you know that as soon as you meet that deadline, close that sale, finish that action plan, there's another one coming. And it just never ends. And so you're always under pressure. Maybe it's your home life where you feel the pressure right now. You're in a marriage and you're going, gosh, I just wish that my spouse could be a little bit better or that my husband could be a little more perfect. Maybe you're second guessing where you're at in your marriage right now. Maybe it's your parenting and you're going, oh my gosh, I just feel this pressure to be a parent. And maybe the pressure is to be the parent that you never had, to be the opposite of the parent that you did have, or to simply live up to the family name that you're trying to keep going. Maybe, maybe your home life is that you have six kids that you're trying to raise, three of whom 
whom are in soccer, you're coaching two of their teams. One of them is in swim. You have a two-year-old that just got out of diapers and a full, that got really personal for me just now. Um, maybe, maybe, that's just, maybe that's just me in a therapy session with you right now. And the pressure that I, like that's my life. Like I just feel like people have asked us like, hey, how are the Hickmans doing? What's going on in fall? And I'm like, we are just busy. We are just busy. And I love it. And all of you that have like, that you're empty nesters, you keep telling me like, enjoy the season that you're in because it goes really quick. And I'm choosing to believe you uh, because it is, I love it. I wouldn't give any of it up, but oh my gosh, are we just busy? And I feel the pressure. We're in that season in our house where literally every now, now, night now, my wife and I look at each other and we're like, what is the plan for tomorrow? Like, who needs to be where, when, and who's going to take them, and what car is going to go there, and why do we not have a live-in nanny right now? Like, like, this is just every single day for us. And so you feel the pressure. Now, there's kind of two ways that you could react to pressure. One of them is to crack under that pressure. And some of you have experienced that in your life. It is that as the pressure comes on, the way that you cope with it is you just, you just finally crack and you just can't do it anymore. And as painful as that is, and we don't want that for anybody, it's often the spot where people will finally raise their hand and say, hey, can I get some help? Can I get some help? It's part of the reason that we're doing the labs that's going on right now during the 9 a.m. service last week and this week and next week. It's because we go, we know that this is there. But, but our heart's desire as a teaching team and as a church for you is that we wouldn't get to this place, but we would go here that we are formed by our pressure. That by being in community with one another and submitting our lives over to God and letting him inform how we handle and deal with the pressure, that our lives would be strengthened, that we would understand the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that even in the hardest of times, we would never lose hope. And that we would let the pressures of life form us. And so today, we're gonna be looking at the unintentional pressure that happens in our life because we want things and we can't get them. Which is why we've titled this sermon, You Can't Always Get What You Want. Now, if you heard me say that and you didn't think of Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, I'm sorry, we can't be friends anymore. Because all week long, like, like this, I've been singing this song, you can't, I won't do it now. You're like, we've, we've just been doing it, right? Whether it's at home or at work or from God, we all want things out of life. And when we can't get them, it adds the pressure and we try to go get them. We try to get them in our own power. In other words, if I can't get what I want, I'm going to turn to other sources that I can control where I know that I can get at least a little of what I want. You see, I think part of the reason we do this is at the core of so many of us, we're just selfish people. I want what I want, and I'm willing to go cut corners to hurt people and to go get what I can want, even if it's just for a moment. Again, if you're married, you understand this. I remember right before I got married, my, my brother's a really wise man, and he was already married. And so I just said, hey, Brad, I was like, as I'm moving into to marriage here, what's your advice for me? Any advice that you have for me as I'm about to get married? He goes, yeah. He goes, man, you never know how selfish you are until you get married. You don't have to do anything about it until you have kids. And I was like, that's so true. That's so true. It's, it's marriage is this crucible that goes, man, I really liked doing my thing in my way. And now all of a sudden, like, I like the dishes done this way and she likes the dishes done that way. And that's wrong. <laughs> so I don't get what I want. But you can just kind of figure it out and you learn about it. And then you have kids and you realize that your entire life is often about sacrificing on behalf of them. And that's hard. And so then I look for other areas where if I can't get what I want over here, how can I get what I want over here? 
I take advantage of people for selfish gain or I manipulate the situation. And then I do the thing where I justify it and I simply call it self-care. Or I go, the heart wants what the heart wants. Never mind anybody else, but because I can't get what I want over here, I'm going to go hurt and take from people over here. This is why as parents, we're consistently trying to train up and, and to teach our kids that, listen, life is not fair and you don't always get what you want. This is just the way that things are, but it also points to the fact that that's how hard it is to deal with. It takes a heart change. It takes a different posture. It means that if I'm not going to get always what I want, that I have to have a heart of humility and repentance. And that's a lifelong journey that is difficult. And so to unpack that this morning and to sort of walk us on a journey through this, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4. And we're going to be just kind of looking at a few verses there. And, and James, James understands that you don't always get what you want out of life. James is the little brother of Jesus. His brother had the Messiah complex, and he's the only one that could have it. And as a little brother myself who still is trying to live up to my big brother in a lot of ways, like, I, I get it. You just, you can't always get what you want. In fact, one of the cool things about James is James was really hesitant that Jesus was the Messiah, son of God. He didn't believe that until after Jesus rose from the dead. And then he was like, oh my goodness, he wasn't just a brother. He was God in the flesh. And so James gave his life over to following after Jesus, and he became a pastor of a church, and he writes this letter that we now have that bears his name. He was writing it to a Christian community that he loved and that he led. He's writing to them because he's seen some patterns in them where they're starting to interact with one another and interact with the community around them where they're doing everything for their own advantage. The selfishness is there. He's going, every, the decisions you're making, you're doing that for your own selfish gain. You're trying to get from people what you want. You want your own way. And so as a part of the letter, he addresses that. Here's what he says in James chapter four, verse one. Where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside of you? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself that question? To go, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among us come from? Isn't it from your passions that battle inside of you? That's a tough question to ask of yourself. Maybe right now you're in an ongoing feud with a coworker. Or maybe you're at an impasse with a family member and, and something you just disagree on. Or, or maybe you're arguing all the time with your in-laws because, well, they're in-laws. And you're looking at this and you're going, listen, I'm going to point the finger at them and everything they're doing wrong. You see, I'm not getting what I want. And the reason I'm not getting what I want is because of them. I mean, after all, if they would only, well, listen, you don't know the full, hey, can I just tell you the full story, my part of things? James is going, let's put all that down and let me ask you a question. And today's sermon is not about relational conflict. Brian's actually going to teach on that next week. And so I encourage you to come back. But, but that's a little bit where James starts is he's going, hey, let me ask you a question. And let's look at what James is really asking. Where do the conflicts and the quarrels, he's like, I know you fight. 
I know there's, there's tension among you. And oftentimes, the reason we're at odds with one another is I want something and you want something, and we can't agree on how to help each other do that. So we argue about it, not so that we can come to a compromise, but so that I get what I want, so that I win and so that you lose. And he goes, so what is it that causes that? It's actually not out there in them. It's your passions that are inside of you. You see, James isn't ignorant to the fact that it takes two people to be in an argument. But what he's doing at the beginning of chapter four is he's going, hey, before we deal with all the parties involved, let's like do this internal look. You're not getting what you want out of this. What does that say about you? You see, what James is doing here is he's pointing to what today we call emotional intelligence or, or EQ. Maybe you've heard of IQ, right? That, that test to prove how smart we are, which has actually been proven to not actually prove how smart we are. That's a different TED Talk for a different day. But, but like, th this is the emotional intelligence. It's going, hey, how, how emotionally intelligent are you enough to be in tune with what's going on inside of you? Uh, Dr. Aubrey Malfers defines it this way. Emotional intelligence is an awareness of our emotions and the emotions of others around us so that we can handle well our emotions and theirs, especially the harmful ones, with the result that we relate in a Christ-like manner with those within or outside the body of faith. And so this is how Malfers defines emotional intelligence. And you'll notice there's two parts. The, the second part is the, this part right here, the emotions of others around us. The first part, though, is our emotions, and that's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on the being aware of our own emotions so that we can relate to people in a Christ-like manner because that's where James starts the beginning of chapter 4. What is it that causes this inside of you? Is it not the passions that you have internally? Are you aware of those and why they are there? But if we're going to be aware of this, if we're going to grow in emotional intelligence, it's really, really hard. It's hard because, first of all, I have to be aware of me. And I really like me. And I really think that I'm right. And I'm good at deceiving myself. That's why James has said that earlier in the book. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. I've got to be aware of me, but then once I'm aware of me, I, when I'm in a conversation with someone, when things go bad, I have to then learn to recognize me, <clears throat> to pay attention to when things are going sideways. And then once I am aware of me and I recognize me, then I have to monitor me. And I have to be willing to slow down in that moment, and that sort of a process never ever ends. It never stops. I'm continually growing in that. It's why James' question at the beginning is so good, because it's a question that I can ask for the rest of my life. Not only that, but then I have blind spots. I have blind spots around me where, where I'm just not aware of what the passion or the desire that I have, which is why I need to be in community to have other people point those blind spots out to me. I need to be around people that can come and point them out to me. That when they point them out to me, the sad part is I wish that I would respond in emotional maturity with some intelligence around it. But what happens most of the time is somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, listen, there's this thing. You reacted in a situation and they point it out to me and I respond with emotional immaturity. I'm like, uh-uh. I didn't do that. Well, let me tell you, let me begin to justify and explain to you why I did that. That's why it's so hard and we continue to quarrel and to fight with one another. Because what I've got to do is, is if I'm going to grow in this and ask the question that James is asking us with, then I have to be people around me that are willing to come to me 
to ask me the hard thing, to point out my blind spot, and then when I react to them in a way that is negative and hurts them, I need them to be in relationship with me enough that they're willing to stick around with me, let me go through that, and then come back around, and we still have relationship. It's why there's quarrels and fights among us. I ran into this over the past couple of years in the pandemic. Is there was just pressure that, that I was feeling in all sorts of ways and trying to lead and not knowing how to do it and everybody's world got turned upside down. And there were people in my life that, that I considered dear friends that we were hanging out on, on more than one occasion. And as we were just having conversation and the things are going, I just want to let you know, like I didn't handle it well. With my friends, I lost my temper. I was angry with them. So much so that in the middle of the conversation, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I got up and I left the conversation. I wasn't emotionally intelligent enough and aware of the passions inside of me that I could stay and maintain relationship. And so I stormed off. And as I was driving home, I began to justify it in my head. Maybe you've done that. Where I begin to be like, well, listen, I just had, I know me enough that I had to remove myself from that situation. Yeah, you know yourself well enough that you're a jerk, and that's why you had to remove yourself from that situation. It's because you were going to be more than a jerk. In fact, you probably were. And I'm driving, I'm like, well, you know, if they hadn't of, if they did not push my buttons, they did this, and I began to justify and justify and justify my righteous anger at the situation until I couldn't sleep that night. And then the Holy Spirit began to go, hey, why'd you get so mad? Well, I got mad because of what they did. No, 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 why'd, why'd you get so mad? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the passion within you? Hey, hey, Grant, you know that anger is a secondary emotion, so what's the primary thing that's driving that? Stop asking me that, God. I don't want to go there. I don't want, no, 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 no. What I want is to be told that they were wrong and I am right. No, forget what they did, Grant. Forget that maybe who owes who an apology. What's going on in you? What caused that reaction in you? You see, I hated that question. I hated that question because it meant there was something wrong inside of me. And it meant that I needed to change my posture. I needed to change my attitude. I wasn't getting what I wanted in that moment I wasn't asking myself the hard question about it. And I wanted to point the finger that it was everybody else's fault. And so when we do that, we begin to manipulate and to justify and to hurt people and things escalate because I'm not getting what I want. And so I'm going to turn to means where I can get what I want. That type of escalation in relationships, by the way, James covers that in verse two. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, maybe like me, you read that and you're like, well, that escalated a little bit quickly. Like, like I mean, I've been angry, I've lost my temper, I've cut corners, but like, I didn't kill anybody. Like, at least I didn't do that. Or like, like I didn't wage war against them, and at least I didn't go that far. Yeah, I didn't go that far. But maybe you bully or you boycott to get what you want. 
Or you go about and you, you engage in character assassination or undermining colleagues to make sure that they look bad and you look good so that you'll get the promotion and you'll look good in your boss's eyes and not them. Or maybe you gossip with the people around you and you triangulate the situation and you create war camps where there's an enemy against an enemy and yours is the good side. You see, when I want something and I'm not getting it, I'm willing to go to things and all of a sudden live out of a character that if somebody was to point it out, I'd go, man, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. But if they also point it out, they go, yeah, you're not getting what you want. So you're controlling the narrative. You're controlling the perception. You're controlling your story so that you can at least keep what you do have and probably get what you actually want with no regard or care for the people around you. The interesting thing that James does in this text, though, is he points all that out, and then he goes, hey, and by the way, the wanting things in life, that's not the problem. The wanting is okay. It's the why you want it, the thing that's underneath that that we're trying to deal with. It's why he starts with the personal rhetorical question. That's what he says at the end of verse 2. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. He's going, it's okay to want things. Let me explain to you the reason you don't have it. The reason you don't have it is you don't ask God for it. Now, maybe right now you're a skeptic like me and you read that and you go, whoa, 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 James, so which one is it? I thought the reason I'm not getting what I want is because of the passions that are inside me and that those are bad. And now you're telling me that it's because I don't trust God and I'm not asking him about it. So which one is it? Choose a lane, pick it. Like, like which one is it, James? And it's a good thing that James is writing to people just like you and me because he answers the question by saying it's both. Even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see, it's not the wanting that's the problem. It's not even going, some of you are going to God and you're asking. He goes, it's not the passion that is the problem. It's the passion that is driving you underneath that to it. It's why the Holy Spirit with me was going, whoa, it's a, anger is a secondary emotion. What's the thing underneath that that you're wrestling with? What's the selfish desire What's the thing that you would ask for in prayer? And God's going, I'm withholding that from you right now because I love you and I know your motives around that are not pure. This is what a loving God does for us. That he doesn't always give us what we want because he has something better for us. You see, maybe for a lot of us, it's like, God, I'm just coming to you and I'm, I'm praying for health and long life, but you're doing that so that you could live a pleasant life. You're going, God, would you just give me some wealth so that I could live in luxury and approve my family name? And he's like, that's not why I want to give you wealth. I want to give it to you so you can be generous. God, would you just give me victory and success and all that I do so that I could get the glory and you don't get any of it? God, I don't want all, any more suffering for me. I'm done with this, but I definitely want suffering for the people that have hurt me. And God's going, see, you're asking for things that in and of themselves are fine, but the motive behind why you're asking, I'm trying to get down to that. So often we pray for blessing with a selfish aim and not for serious and actual design to give God his glory. Don't uh, misunderstand this. God desires that we think of our comfort. He's okay with that. But he wants us first and foremost to find comfort in him above and beyond all things in this world. That when we seek after him, we would do so with a sincere heart that is trusting what he has for us is better than what we could get on our own. This, by the way, is what Jesus did in the garden before he went and died in my place on that cross. He knew the pain that was coming. And Jesus said, Father, 
if I don't have to do this, let's not do this. But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is praying a prayer of asking for comfort there. Asking for a different way. But his reasons are to glorify God. You see, you and I want, and it's not the wanting that is wrong, it's the passions behind that, that are underneath that, wanting for all the wrong reasons. There's a silly example of this in my house that we kind of laugh at right now, and, and it's, it's silly because it's not manipulation at all. It's just a four-year-old being a four-year-old. But, but at dinner, we often, uh, when we can sit down as a family together, we pray before our food to just thank God for the day and, and what's happened and for the food that we have there. And inevitably, I'll ask my kids, anybody want to pray? And right now, my two-year-old and my four-year-old like to pray. My two-year-old just sits there and mumbles to himself, and um, we think maybe it's tongues, but there's nobody to interpret it, so we don't really know. Um, but but he's, just, he's just sitting there praying something. It's, it's great. If you don't, that was a dumb church joke. Sorry, if you didn't get that... My bad. But, but, but that's my, my two-year-old. My four-year-old, she's, she's great at it. She begins to pray, and she prays for the same things every day, right? Because that's what, what they do. She just kind of has her little rhythm that she goes through. And we, we chuckled because during the summer, my wife and I were going on about a mile walk every day together. And often, because of the long days, and we'd let bedtimes creep a little bit, we would then have our kids come with us on the walk, and we'd do our family walk. So now, every single night at dinner, my four-year-old begins to pray, and she's like sitting there, and she's like, God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the food. I thank you that there's not a cloud in the sky. I thank you. That, and then she'll go, hey, dad, are we going on a family walk later? No, sweetie, you've got to go to bed. We're not going on a family walk. God, I thank you for the family walk that we're going to go on later. <laughs> and we just laugh and I'm like, is she like prophesying? Is she, is she, now listen, like if she's older, that's straight manipulation. She's like, you said no, but I'm going to pray for it anyway because God's got more authority than you, Dad. Right? But in her heart, she just doesn't understand it. But, but my mom, my mom, her, her mom, my wife and I, we look at it and we're just laughing about that because we're going, man, that's like a, an innocent child way of doing it. But don't I do that too? Like there are things that I know are bad for me, things that, that aren't good for me, things that God has already said, hey, I want you to not desire or to want that. And then I go and I pray and I ask for it anyway. And God's like, I don't know why you're asking for that. I've made it really clear about that. Or it's a good thing for me, and I'm going and I'm asking God for it, and God's like, hey, no, not right now. No, not right now. The answer is no, and I just keep doing it over and over, and I'm not trusting and slowing down enough to say, okay, if God is saying no in this, then why? Well, what is going on in me? In fact, the text would go on to say, that when we pray double-minded like this towards God, when we deal with him in a relationship this way, that it actually puts us at odds with God and we become his enemy in that moment. The text gets very, very serious. And if we were to just end right there and to go, hey, listen, you don't always get what you want. C'est la vie. That's how life is. Sometimes you don't get what you want from people. Sometimes you don't get what you want from God. Have a great time. That would leave us very wanting in this moment. But thankfully, James gives us some hope. Here's verse six. God gives grace generously, which means even when I'm not doing it well, there's still grace. After all, Proverbs 3.34 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, God is passionate about this. He wants us to demonstrate an uncommon humility before him and before others. That we would come and go, God, <clears throat> I want to lay my pride down. I want to humble myself before you. And when we do that, God responds with generous grace. 
which means Mick Jagger was probably right. You can't always get what you want. But if you try, sometimes you'll find you get what you need. Now, I don't think the Rolling Stones were trying to be biblical when they wrote that song. They were probably being theological in their own right. So how then, how do I pursue what I want, but end up getting what I need? Well, that changes your posture. You have to change your posture. See, a proper posture before God and others gives us what we really need. That's how we do it. That's how we pursue what we want and end up getting what we need, is this proper posture before God and others will then give us what we really, really need. It's why I said it's a heart change. It's why that rhetorical question up front is so important. It's because it forces me to get in tune with my own emotional intelligence and to sit there and say, what about me needs to change? And then if we're going to begin to try to live this out, there's two very simple ways that I think we can do that. The first of which is we simply trust God. We trust God. This is another way of saying, be humble. Lay your pride down. Come to God and say, God, I believe that what you have for me is actually best for me. And so I'm going to humble myself before you. You see, pride is consistently in my life leaning out going, hey, I'm going to trust myself on this. I've got this. I can do this. I'm going to do this in my ability and in my ways. If I'm not getting what I want, then I'm going to go somewhere else where I can be in control and get what I want because I know that I can do this. Humility before God is saying, God, you've got this. I'm going to lay down my wants and desires for yours. Some of you, this is a thing that you need to do for the first time. To just for the very first time say, God, I've been trying to do life my own way and I'm here this morning and I don't even know why, but I need to just trust you. And so you just lay down humbly before him and you go, God, I trust you. I know it's not going to be easy. I know it is hard because of that selfish desire is in me and it's been there since I was in the womb. But God, I trust you. And yet for many of us, it's that moment to go, man, I need to just trust God in fresh and new ways today. And then I need to, to go to God and go, you know what, in this area, I've been double-minded in my thinking. In this area, I've been asking selfishly, instead of going to God and saying, God, what do you want? I've been going to God and saying, here's what I want. And just lay that down and humble ourselves before God. But it takes a posture change. David, the psalmist, wrote it this way in Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. That's why you can trust him. It's because he is the righteous, holy, set-apart, right one. The Lord is near to all who call out to him. He's going, God's not far from you in this moment. He actually wants to be near for you, but to those who call out with integrity. Well, that sounds a whole lot like what James just said. He goes on, though, and he fulfills, God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their heart cry for help, and he saves them. David goes, listen, when you take a posture of integrity before God, trusting him, humbling yourself before him, God always draws near to you. God draws near. And when God draws near, you actually get what you need so much more than what you thought you wanted. See, that's how you get what you want and what you need, as you let God begin to define your life. And then scripture says that he'll give you the desires of your heart. But it's because you're consistently going to him and saying, God, I trust you with my desires more than myself. But the second thing 
is that we have to choose vulnerability. We have to choose vulnerability, both before God and with each other, and this is hard. This is hard because it means that I have to be willing to admit that I have messed up. I have to be willing to go to somebody and and share the thing that I did that hurt them or that hurt others. I have to begin to confess to other people and to go, hey, listen, this is risky for me. I feel like if I share this with you or if I say this, that maybe I'm gonna lose relationship with you, but I'm gonna choose to humble myself before you or what scripture calls repentance. That we would go and repent one to another. That I would be willing to lay down my life before you. And I go, hey, listen, the, the reason that happened is this, that, and the other, and I need to apologize for this. See, choosing vulnerability means that I go to somebody and I go, hey, I messed up, and then I apologize to them, letting them know how I messed up and that I am sorry. And I mean like a true apology. You remember the whole prayer before God thing where it's like you can't do that double-minded, you ask with the wrong passions? The same goes for apologies. Like you and I have all been in that relationship where somebody comes to us and they're like, hey, listen, I need to apologize to you. I did this, this, and this, but, and then they tell you everything you did of why they did that. That's not an apology. That's not an apology. Because what you're doing is going, well, hey, I did this and I'm sorry for that. And now I'd like you to apologize for these things. No, 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 no. No, that's not the way it works. You go and you go, hey, vulnerability is not pointing out to them what they did wrong. Vulnerability is going, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I reacted that way to you. You deserve better than that. And I don't like that I did that. Could you please forgive me? See, that's what vulnerability looks like because you're putting out the olive branch and you're risking that they're going to reject it. And they might. They might. But I've never had somebody apologize to me and I've been like, man, I wish they wouldn't have done that. I've always been like, wow, thank you. Thank you. And then it grows humility in me. You see, this is such a hard thing to do. Some of you are in Rooted right now. And this is week five of Rooted, which is Repentance Week. And so later on this afternoon, you're going to sit in a circle. As you've been studying repentance all week long, you're going to sit in a circle and we're going to practice this rhythm of our faith because it's hard. But it's so biblical and it actually comes right out of James. See, here's what he says. So humble yourselves before God. Trust him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands. This is all repentance language here. It's vulnerability. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. He's going, this is what it is. Trust God, choose vulnerability. And he goes on. Look, look at the next verses. So let there be tears for what you have done, remorse, regret. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And then this last part's the kicker. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Isn't that why so often I go and I go, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm gonna go get what I want somewhere else is because I'm trying to bring honor to my name and look good. And what James says here is, listen, humble yourselves before the Lord and you'll actually end up getting what you need, him, and what you want, honor. You see, we keep trying to cope with the pressures of life by trying to get what we want. But the proper posture before God and others will give us what we really need. Let's pray together. 
Father God, I thank you for James and his writing to the church and that it is as true then as it is now. Spirit, I thank you for speaking into my life and lives of others and convicting us and asking the hard questions. I thank you for the community of people around us that are willing to stay in relationship with us, that, that we don't have to be perfect. And God, would you help us all to be people that trust you more and choose to be vulnerable with others faster? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. One of the rhythms of our church that I just absolutely love is that we take communion every single week here. Uh, communion is an opportunity where we simply slow down and, and pause to remember who Christ is. That Jesus was the first one to demonstrate for us how to trust God, the Father, and live a life that was humble. He chose vulnerability. He did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's nothing more humiliating and humble for humanity than to be falsely accused of a crime, stripped down to nothing and hung on a cross. And God did that on behalf of you and on behalf of me. That's why we remember communion. And so you'll find on the top a, a little wafer. This is a reminder of Jesus' body that was broken for you. You'll find a cup of juice there as well underneath that that is to remind us of the blood that was shed on that cross. We take this to remember what Jesus has done and yet we celebrate through song while we do it because we remember that he is risen from the dead. And so therefore, if you're a follower of Jesus, his spirit is in you, which gives you the ability to consistently trust God. And so during this next song, I want to invite you to take communion whenever you are ready. Let's worship together.